side and have him be the bad guy for us and, and tackle uh, this topic for us. So I preached on God's sovereignty and did Q&A for, with a bunch of students till like 11 at night this past Wednesday night. One gal actually wrote me this long email, like a three-page email with follow-up questions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to force the intern pastors and have them tackle it. And I'm going to get the best out of that and forward it back to her. And then this pa- yesterday, actually, I presided over a wedding of a pastor friend of mine. We used to do ministry a long time ago in campuses in Orange County, like Cassie Long Beach and UC Irvine, UCLA, and so forth. And so it was a good time of reunion with all, those, uh, all the people that we worked with while we were in college, our fellow ministers, our fellow campus leaders. And we had the rehearsal Friday night and a wedding Saturday. It was a good time to like, see a lot of old faces. And it was kind of bittersweet because we found out so many were no longer walking with Christ. It was kind of disheartening. Um, there were so many who were struggling in their faith, struggling to find a good church. They were overwhelmed with the issues of life. So they were going to church. So hey, you know, hands off, leave me alone. I'm going to church. But that's all they did. They went for an hour and a half on Sundays, and that was their Christianity. These were men and women who were steep and involved and committed to evangelism and ministry. They were talking about missions, and now their Christian life is reduced to an hour and a half on Sundays the whole week. We, I talked to a guy who was one of the leaders of our ministry, and him and his wife don't attend church. And I was saying, brother, what happened? What's going on? And he said, you know, we just fell to the cracks, got lost along the way. Uh, other things became a priority, and now we're not sure we want to go back, but we're not sure when, if ever, we will go back to the church and to the Lord. thought about that and was pressed in my heart to go back and study God's sovereignty over our salvation and even our sanctification. We can get so caught up from our human perspective of our, of our faith, human perspective in terms of ministry, and lose sight of God's perspective of our lives, our salvation, and our eternal future forever with Him. To start us off, I want to point your attention to Dr. Norman Geisler, a popular author. He is the head of Southern Evangelical Seminary. He wrote a book several years ago that caused a, quite, caused a great debate within Christianity. His book was titled, Chosen But Free. The purpose of his book was to warn his readers, dissuade his readers from embracing a particular viewpoint that is held by a minority within Christian evangelicals. He describes the adherence of this viewpoint as presenting conclusions that are, quote, unsupported by the Bible. He's warning us and telling us that the conclusions held by this group They are unsupported by the Bible. He he wants us to reject this system, and he warns us that, quote, belief here affects behavior, and ideas have consequences. Therefore, false doctrine will lead to false deeds. He says that this viewpoint is false doctrine. He says the system of belief, quote, can lead to failure to take personal responsibility for our actions. It can have a devastating effect on one's own salvation, say nothing of one's enthusiasm to reach others for Christ. And he continues by saying that this belief system 
even lays the ground for universalism, meaning everybody's saved, everybody's going to heaven, and furthermore undermines the love of God. This doctrine, this theological system undermines the love of God. He believes that the God presented by believers of this system is not worthy of worship, his words, and does not represent the God of the Bible at all, end quote. He continues, he says, the system is contradictory, that the uh, proponents of the system are guilty of scripture twisting, proof texting, and blatantly imposing meaning onto the text. He describes the central aspects of this system as, quote, shocking, and in the strongest terms, he insists that the very heart of this system's belief is, uh, his words, hideous error hideous error, and that this system is at its heart theologically inconsistent, philosophically insufficient, and morally repugnant, end quote. Wow, man, I read this book. So strong words to attack this theological viewpoint. Now, what is he referring to? Is he referring to the Mormon church? Is he talking about the, uh, the Watchtower Society? Is he talking about uh, Roman Catholicism, right? No, he is talking about Calvinism. The system of belief that he is attacking as morally repugnant is Calvinism in his book, Chosen but Free. And he calls himself a two-point Calvinist, so he calls himself a moderate Calvinist. So when you label yourself as a moderate, what is, what is he implying? He's implying any other view is extreme. He is the balanced one. He is the moderate one. So those are labels that, that polarize people, and he's calling everyone who adopts to five points of Calvinism as extremists, as fundamentalists, right? Uh, cancer to the church. We should be moderate and balanced like him. I mean, he goes on in his book, and he denies Calvin's doctrine of God's sovereignty and decrees. He denies Calvin's doctrine of total depravity that man is completely enslaved to sin. He denies Calvin's doctrine that God's electing grace is given without conditions to the elect. And denies vociferously Calvin's doctrines of grace that God brings new life to dead sinners. Now, if you are a student of church history, you understand that this is not a modern debate. This is not a 21st century debate. This debate has been raging throughout the history of the church. Ever since Augustine on down the line, this has been a debate among, between well-meaning Christians. This issue is what precipitated the Reformation. This issue. Um, Martin Luther, as he... Um, closed his monumental response to the Roman Catholic apologist, theologian uh, Erasmus. The book is called The Bondage of the Will. He made it plain, he made it clear to Erasmus that the core issue of the Reformation, the pro protest, we're Protestants, so we, we're protesting against something. So we're protesting against the Roman, Roman Catholic Church. So what was our protest? It was not the papacy. It was not the indulgence. It was not the abuses of the priest. Now, those are not good things. We don't affirm those things. But the Protestants' protest 
was on this very issue of God's absolute freedom and man's absolute dependence. The issue was the bondage of the human will to sin. And God's freedom, God's sovereignty, God's authority to save the lost by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone. That was the heart of the Reformation. And then so he commends Erasmus. He uh, extols Erasmus and he says this, I give you hearty praise and commendation on this account that you alone in contrast to others have attacked the real thing, the essential issue. He says, Erasmus, you understand me like no other critics of mine. You understand what the debate is. He continues, you have not wearied me with those irrelevant issues about the papacy, about purgatory, about indulgences and the like. These are trifles rather than the issues you and you alone have seen. And this issue is the hinge upon which the, turns the gospel. This issue is a hinge where the gospel turns from truth to error or error to truth. And what is this hinge? He is talking about again God's sovereignty, predestination, God's freedom, and man's depravity. Thus is the title of his book, The Bondage of the Will. Roman Catholic Church taught and teaches that the human will is free, able to choose on its own. Luther and the Protestants believe, the Reformationists believe, no, the human will is enslaved by sin, helpless and without hope. This was the soil from which gave birth to this theological revolution. This was the issue that brought Rome to its knees and here we are, 500 years later. The battle rages to this day. And I'm a bearer of bad news, guys. You know, we're not doing so well. We're, if you guys don't know, we're a minority. Uh, you know, we're not even, you know, you know, we're not ranked at all. You know, we're down big time. Uh, uh, we are a minority of minorities within Christianity here in this country and throughout the world. There are basically two camps, right? Calvinists and Arminians. And we're talking about Arminians, theological term, not Armenians, the people group. So we're not saying the Armenians are bad people, they're wrong. No, we love Armenians, but it's the Arminians that the issue is, that we have an issue with. And to paraphrase R.C. Sproul, he said the evangelical church is taken, has been taken by a Pelagian theology, which is Arminian theology. So largely, the Christian church in America has been taken captive by Arminian theology. This is the pervasive view in the church today. I don't think it's wrong to assume that most Christians in America, you talk to them, they accept doctrine of... of um, goodness of man, purity of man. Uh, this Arminian mindset is endemic, a mark of modern Christianity. Um, Fleming Revell, in his edition of The Bondage of the Will, um, he translated with J.I. Packer and O.R. Johnston, their, their um, preface said this, 
with what right may we call ourselves children of the Reformation? Much of modern Protestantism would be neither owned nor even recognized by our reformers. If Luther were to come to America today, he would say, where are the Protestants? If Calvin, Zwingli were to come to Christian America in the, in the world, they would say, where are the Protestants? Where are the Christians? What happened to the Reformation? What happened to the movement we started? It's, it's, uh, it's uh, a minority to say the least. Modern Christians uniformly, almost uniformly, excuse me, and almost universally teach that um, um, man is basically good. Barna did a, a survey uh, several years ago. Seventy percent of professing born-again Christians believe that man is basically good. Sadder result is that 80 percent believe that God helps those who help themselves. Right? Eighty percent believe that is a verse in the Bible. <laughs> Uh, to say that Christianity is overwhelmed and immersed in this theological mindset is um, you know, not overstating in the, in the least. And again, I want to just qualify by saying I'm, it's not a personal thing. You know, I love Arminians. Um, I'm not attacking their character. I'm not talking about their godliness or their morals or it's personal. Not at all. This debate raised in the 18th century between two men, Whitfield and Wesley. Whitfield was a Calvinist. Uh, Wesley was an ardent um, uh, Arminian. So people came to Whitfield and said, George Whitfield, will you see John Wesley in heaven? As a loaded question, right? And Whitfield res- responded, no, I won't see Wesley in heaven. They're like, what? You're not going to see John Wesley in heaven because he's an Arminian? He said, no, in heaven... Wesley will be so close to the throne of God, and I'll be so far away from God's throne, there is no way I'll be able to see John Wesley. Man, like, that's exactly it. We're not saying John Wesley is a bad person or a bad guy. It's a theological issue. It's a Bible issue. What does the scriptures teach us? Right? And... If we profess doctrines of grace, that should produce grace in us, right? That should produce humility. That should produce gentleness and meekness, not spiritual pride, not haughtiness, thinking that because we know these doctrines were better than others, that we created these doctrines, that we are the ones that produced them. No, we receive them by grace, understand them by grace, and may by God's grace apply them to our lives, but may it never produce in us pride and use these things to attack others. Again, it's an issue of what does the Bible say? Well, before we delve into the text, let's go to a brief history of Arminianism. Arminianism derives its name from Jacobus Arminius, professor of divinity at Leiden University in Holland at the turn of the 17th century. He studied under Theodore Beza, who was a disciple of John Calvin. So he was a, you know, a direct lineage to John Calvin himself. Beza was a strong proponent of Reformed theology, but Jacobus Arminius represented a retreat from that position. He didn't continue in that line. <clears throat> he went against it. It was actually a return 
to the position taken by Roman Catholicism at the Council of Trent. Arminius died in 1609, and as students are prone to do, disciples are prone to take a teacher's doctrines or philosophy and take it to its uh, next level. So his followers took Arminius' teachings and took it to its logical conclusions, and they systematized his teachings, and they presented the five points of Arminianism. Five points. Five articles of the Reformed Church in Holland. These articles were condemned by the Synod of Dort in 1619 as unbiblical. Council of Churches gathered, Protestant churches gathered together and said, these five points of Jacobus Arminius is not biblical. And they responded with the five points of Calvinism. Calvin didn't uh, produce the five points. He just uh, exposited the scripture. He wrote, introduced the Christian religion. And in response to the five points of Arminianism, Cal- five points of Calvinism came out. It was a response. The five points of Arminianism I have in your outlines, they're broadly uh, stated, are as follows. Free will or human ability. That man, although affected by the fall, is not totally incapable of choosing spiritual good. He is able to exercise faith in God apart from God in order to receive the gospel. Thus bringing himself into possession of salvation. As an idea, there's an island of righteousness. There is a vestige of goodness, moral purity, and freedom. And man, apart from God's, apart from the cross, apart from God, can exercise independent of God, free will to, to be saved. So it's a, a synergistic work. It's a cooperation between God and man for man to be saved. Second point is conditional election. God chose us because He knew we would choose God. So he, we are the initiators and God is responding to our decision. And God's selection of us is based upon our exercise of our free will. Third, universal redemption or general atonement. This taught that Christ died to make salvation available to everyone. So he died for everybody. And if you don't choose Christ, it's your fault. But if you choose Christ, then it's, you get some you know, uh, credit for that because you rechose. Fourth, the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is limited by the human will. Right. This taught that the Holy Spirit as he seeks to bring a person to Christ, can be resisted. His purpose is frustrated. The sinner must be willing and cooperate. Finally, falling from grace, this taught that a saved man could fall, fall away forever from salvation. Fall away from salvation. And the worst combination is to be a one-point Calvinist. Right? To have a non-lordship Doctrine and one point Calvary. That's the worst combination that many Christians in America have. You, you, it's like you pray that prayer, you're a Christian, right? You pray the sinner's prayer, you walk down the aisle, you get baptized, sign the baptismal certificate, you're saved, and then you're a one point Calvary. You can never lose that salvation, right? You're in. You, you know, you're, you got it. You're in heaven. Man, that's what, that's the worst combination. I'd rather be a five point Arminian than to be a one point Calvinist, but that's a whole different sermon, okay? Uh, this is the five, these are the five points of Arminianism, and I'm not going to state the five points of Calvinism. Because my goal in my life, really it is, it is, and your goal in your life, you don't know it maybe, but it is, is not to 
endorse a system of faith. It's not to embrace a system of theology. Our, our rallying cry is not Calvinism, or it's not dispensationalism, or whatever isms that are out there. Our motto, our rallying cry is Christ and Christ alone. Our rallying cry is, thus says the Bible, the Word of God. What does the Bible say? We are Christians, we are not Calvinists. Right? I'm a disciple of Christ, right? not a follower of a man in a sense. We want to be biblicists. And I like what Spurgeon said, I have that for you in your outlines. There is no soul living who holds more firmly to the doctrines of grace than I do. And if any man asks me whether I am ashamed to be called a Calvinist, I answer, I wish to be called nothing but a Christian. But if you ask me, for the sake of brevity, for the sake of cutting to the chase, and for the sake of understanding, right, do I hold the doctrinal views which were held by John Calvin? I reply, I do in the main hold them, and rejoice to affirm, to avow it. Continued. Calvinism is simply a nickname for biblical Christianity. A nickname for biblical Christianity. So, again, what is, what is biblical Christianity? What, is the, what does the Bible say? That is our concern. That is the test. So, we go to today's text in John 6, and we find the five points of Jesus Christ. Right? Forget Calvin. Forget Arminius. Let's look at what Jesus... Forget Augustine. Let's even forget Apostle Paul. Let's go to God Himself. Five points of Jesus Christ. Now, today's passage, verses 37 through 44. The richness of this passage cannot be overstated. There is just so much here. The setting is important. They have followed Him after they've been fed bread and fish. Right? They're following Him. And our Lord knows they're there. Not, for, not because they love Him and believe in Him and want to follow Him as His disciples. They're there because they want the food. I want the bread and fish. I went to a wedding in Korea many years ago for my cousin, and they were telling me they invited 300, but they have food prepared for 400. I said, why? And he said, well, in Korea, it's a common practice for people to dress up on Saturdays and Sundays and go to wedding reception halls for free meals. Are you serious? He said, there are at least 25% of people here that are not part of the wedding party, but they're here for the meal. I go, why don't you do something? What can we do? Right? We don't know who's who. They're all dressed up. They sneak in, they eat, and they go. They're not there at the wedding for the husband and bride and groom. They're there for the food. Right? Well, Christ, He knew who was there for the food. He knew who were the faithful disciples that were there because they believed in Christ. He knew that for a great majority of them, man, they want more free meals. They want, Jesus, walk on water now. You know? Hey, can you levitate? You know, I have this bad shoulder injury from playing, you know, I don't know, playing whatever they did in ancient days. Can you fix my shoulder a little bit? Right? Who he is and how he is central to God's work of redemption was unimportant to him, but our Lord did not pander to their felt needs. He goes to the real issue, rebukes them to their hearts, and he, and he calls out to them, and he says, I am the bread of life. Unless you eat of my flesh, drink my blood, you have no part with me. Wow. I mean, that was a scandalous, shocking statement. So much so, later on in John 6, 66, many disciples deserted him, no longer followed him, because that's too hard. 
that standard is too high. That's too much commitment. You're too intense, Jesus. I want a seeker-friendly Jesus, you know. I want someone who will accommodate, sugarcoat his teachings. Because Abraham never said, you must partake of me. He never viewed himself as a central figure for someone else's salvation. Moses never did that. The patriarchs of Israel never assigned salvation to themselves. And here is Jesus Christ, and he said, I am the bread of life. For you to be saved, you must be united with me. And so they rejected uh, his message. They rejected Christ. And verse 36 you have seen me, you have seen me perform miracles, and you have seen me do signs and wonders, you have heard me teach truth, and yet you still do not believe. They had seen him with their physical eyes, but, but spiritually they were still blind. And verse 36 is key. It's important because the turning point happens in verse 36 in this chapter. Because in this verse, Jesus explains their unbelief. He explains it. How is it that these men could witness these incredible miracles? Each personally experienced the reality of the miracles. They didn't see it from a distance. They tasted the bread. Right? I mean, you understand? They ate the bread. They were filled. They ate the fish. They, they saw it with their own eyes. And yet, how can they be so spiritually blind? How can they reject Christ and His message? How is this possible that the people of Israel, with the patriarchs, with the law of God, reject their own Messiah? Verses 37-44 explains how this is possible, how, why this happened. And here we find the five points of Jesus Christ. The first point is election. First point is election, and I would add election that is unconditional. Election that is unconditional. And we've been starting through this, through this in John 17, so uh, it's kind of a refresher for us. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Remember John 17, six times, Jesus said concerning the elect, you gave them to me, you gave them to me. Remember these people? Father, keep them because you gave them to me. Father, sanctify them because you gave them to me. I am praying for them because they are yours and you gave them to me. This select, set apart group of people, the elect, was given to Jesus Christ by the Father. These are the first words to come from the Lord in explanation of man's belief or man's unbelief. This assertion is one of complete divine sovereignty. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The pronoun all is neuter singular, singular, Greek pan, and thus denotes the sum total of all believers, the sum total of the elect, all the people, the group of people the Father gives will come to Christ and be saved. What happened? The inner Trinitarian transaction. The Father, because He loved the Son, gave the elect as a reward to His Son whom He loved. The Father and the Son viewed them as a single whole uh, group. He is a sovereign King. And this is a divine transaction. And know what Christ said. He didn't say, most that you give me will come to me. Yeah, some, they got lost along the way. Oh, that's Satan. Oh, man, deceiver. Right? 80% made it. Oh, 50% made it. No, all. 
Every single one that you gave to me will come to me. This tells us that the giving by the Father to the Son precedes our coming to Christ. Right? So giving of the Father to the Son precedes our coming to Christ. We are given, that's why we go. We go because we were already given, this is 2,000 years ago. And it's talking about what happened before creation of the world. This is talking about election. So simply put, we believe because He saved us. Right? We, we come to faith. We seek, seek Christ because He first sought us. God is the initiator of our salvation. God began it. Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. And I would add, it is unconditional. Unconditional. By the way, if you're a Christian, you believe in election. No Christian denies election. Everybody believes in election because it's in the Bible. That word is in the Bible. 1 Peter 1, right? Ephesians 1, Romans 8 and 9. The debate is, is it unconditional or is it conditional? Right? Did God choose us because, he said, James Shin, good guy. You know, he's smart. Right? He's street smart. He knows. You know, go to hell, go to heaven. He'll pick heaven. So I'm going to pick him. Is it conditional or is it unconditional? James Shin, no good. He's just like the rest. No fear of God. Right? Hater of God. Didn't trespass. Right? No righteousness. Right? You know, dishonors mom and dad. Right? That's what Romans says. But I will choose for my own glory. Which is it? I definitely loaded the deck right there, right? But the Bible says it's unconditional. It's not contingent upon us. Our salvation is not determined or based upon our merit. Titus 3.5. I mean, this is clear. Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of righteous things that we had done but because of His own mercy. If He saved us because of righteous things that we would do, that's not mercy. That's, that's payment. Right? You work, you get paid. So God, give me what I deserve. I did righteous things, give me salvation. Paul says, no. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done. Second Timothy 1.9, He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done. Not because of us but because of His own purpose and grace tells us it is unconditional that God initiated our salvation while we were walking away from God, while we were dead in, in our sins, while we were shaking our fists, scoffing and mocking God, blaspheming His name at the cross. He saved us. That's the first point. All the Father gives me will come to me. Point number two, irresistible grace. Effectual grace. These are the words of Christ. They are in red. And this is a prophetic declaration by our Lord promising that all those given to the Son by the Father will come to Him. Will come to Him. No, the issue is not man's decision. But whether the Father has given him to Christ, that is the issue. If anyone is given to the Son by the Father, he or she will come to Christ. Period. Period. Well, this past Wednesday, a girl asked me, but that means I have no free will at all, no decisions. 
Yeah, you know, you, you, we decide. We have freedom. And the illustration I gave is, you're on a cruise ship going from Long Beach Harbor to Hawaii. So while you're in that cruise ship, you can have the all you can eat buffet at midnight and the pizza, you know, buffet at lunch. You can lay down the sun deck or you can go downstairs and if you kind of, a, you know, you know, whatever, dance, I don't know, you can do whatever. You can sleep in your room, whatever. You have freedom in that ship. Do whatever you want. But you're going to go to Hawaii, right? That ship's going to land in Hawaii and you're going to be in Hawaii. Likewise, we have freedom. I have freedom to stop my sermon right now and, you know, end it. Or I have a freedom to go on. You have a freedom to cut your hair or lengthen your hair. But if you've been given to the Son by the Father, this cruise ship is going to Hawaii in a sense. And the decision is of the Father and not up to us. And this work to the Holy Spirit is irresistible, as you said. Right? We can't, we have no say because we're given to the Son, we'll come to Him. The illustration that I'll give is taught our daughters, Elizabeth and Emma, about Lazarus a few months ago. How Lazarus had no choice to come out or not. Why? Because he was dead. It's not like Lazarus come out. Oh man, I don't know if I want to come out. Gosh, I like it in here, you know. I was just getting comfortable, right? All right, I'll come out, you know. Move that rock and he takes his cloak. No, right? He couldn't hear Jesus. He, he couldn't think. Because he was dead for four days. So when Jesus called him, that's why he's God. That's why it's a miracle. person who has, can't hear is dead comes to life. That's the call, the outward call of Jesus. But the inward call to Lazarus, the Holy Spirit, giving him a new heart, giving him life, that's exactly what happened to you and I. We were dead in sin. And somebody called us to the gospel, explained the gospel to us. At the same time through the gospel, the Holy Spirit called us in our soul, in our spirit, in our hearts. And all of a sudden we could see. All of a sudden we could understand. All of a sudden our hearts were changed. It is effectual grace. Let me read to you Augustine's quote. I think I have it for you, don't I? During all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? And if you know Augustine's life, he was an immoral guy. I mean, he was involved in sexual sin. I mean, a depraved existence. All those years of sin, where was my free will? He was enslaved to sin. I tried so many times to quit, remember? He was crying in that garden because so many times out of pure morality he wanted to do what was right, he couldn't. He kept on going back to prostitutes. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. Oh, isn't that beautiful? You did it, God. Lord, you drove it away. You changed my heart. Before, sin was sweet to my taste. I lived for sin. And you entered my heart, and my taste buds changed. Now, I love the Holy Spirit. I love Christ. I love obedience. Irresistible grace. The third point, last part of verse 37, there is great controversy, great debate, they're making ad hominem attacks, 
Hey, who is this? Isn't this Jesus? Right? They grumbled about him. Verse 40. Getting ahead of myself. Verse 37. Christ said, Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. All the Father gives me will come. And those that come to me, I will not drive away. He will accept. He will embrace. What is he saying? He will save. He will save each and every one. Third point, eternal security of the believer. Eternal security. We're sent by Christ, by God the Father, and Jesus Christ will embrace us, will accept us, and will save us. It means we cannot turn away, we cannot turn aside, we cannot reject Him because He accepts us. He is not dependent upon our will. No, it is the Lord's will. Look, go down to verse 9. This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should, shall lose none of all that He has given me. I shall lose none. Shall lose none. You know, someone who believes that a Christian can lose their salvation, I understand what you're saying. From a human perspective, man, I saw people lose their salvation yesterday, right? <laughs> you were a Christian, now you're not a Christian, you lost it, I guess, right? From our perspective, it looks like they lost it. But from God's perspective, what are we saying? We're saying God failed. We're saying Jesus was powerless against human will. That Jesus tried to save us, to hold on to us. He couldn't. Because he was too weak. And his words were nullified. And his words are not true. No, you're denying who God is. Jesus said in John 10, 27 through 30, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. I promise. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is greater than all, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father and I are one. We are united not to lose the elect. If we say that salvation can be lost, we're saying, Jesus, you are wrong. The Father is wrong. And you are powerless against man's autonomy, man's authority and independence. And not only that, it makes a mockery of God's love and mercy. It makes a mockery of God's compassion. The Bible becomes a cruel joke. I gave that illustration how there were girls who were adopted, by Chinese girls who were adopted by parents here. And these caseworkers, they see these girls in foster care. Kids that were adopted from China. So what happened was, these parents went, spent like $25,000 to adopt a child from an orphanage in China, brought them here, raised them up, and then, who knows what happened. You know, they got into drugs or alcohol, they got a divorce, the child wasn't as cute, wasn't as obedient, wasn't as moral, it, it didn't turn out like the princess that they dreamed of, and so they give that child up for adoption again, war of the state. What a, that's so sad, right? And so that's, that's, that's so sad. And is that what happened to us? If, that, if that's what happens to us, then this is not the gospel. It's not good news. It's, it's sad news. It's awful news that at any point we sin against God, He can disown us, right? Anytime we rebel, we have bouts of sin and, and rebellion and selfishness and pride. At any point, he can say, you know what? I'm tired of you. I'm sick of you. Man, I'm so patient with you. I loved you so much. But you're so unappreciative, ungrateful. 
I'm going to disown you back to the world. If that was the Bible taught, man, that's not good news. That's not the gospel. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, I will never drive away. I will hold on to you. No one can snatch you out of my hand. And even if in times of our sins, like Peter, denied the Lord three times, Jesus said, you know, Satan asked for you. And you know what I said? I said, can't have you. Because you're in my hand. Right? You can shift you as wheat, but you're in my hand. I will not let go of you. Man, what a promise. That even if we deny the Lord through sin, He will not let go of us. Right? That's why to me, these points are hills to die on. Teaches us that salvation and our sanctification is God's work, not man's work. Hebrews 12, 2. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Philippians 1, 6. He began the good work, will carry it on to completion. And the people didn't like it at all. Man, verse 41. They began to grumble about Jesus. So they attacked him. Man, aren't you Joseph's son? Right? We know your parents. How can you say you came down from heaven? Right? They're just kind of avoiding this main issue and going back to how Christ came down from heaven, back to the bread of life. Jesus stops their grumbling. He's a good evangelist, good apologist. He continues on what he was talking about. He doesn't legitimize their grumbling and he says in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on last day. Now look at verse 44. Unless the Father draws him, no one can come. It's not no one should come. No one might come. No one can. It's inability. Unless the Father draws us first, we cannot come to God. Why? Point number four. Total depravity. Definite and complete depravity. These are words of incapacity. That all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If at our age, if I have to defend to you and prove to you that men are depraved, men are evil, men are sinful, I have no words, I have no evidences, I have no logic to convince you. Because if, if wars, if you know, Rwanda and Burundi, right, and what's happened in Chechnya, I mean, what happened with the terrorists in Russia killing school-aged children, rigging bombs to kill little kids. I mean, I mean what goes on like in daily news, if this doesn't convince you, that men are sinful, born in sin. That kids, they look pure because they don't have, they can't talk, they can't do things. Only reason they look pure is because they just sit there and they can't do it. If, if kids were born mature, they would sin, they won, right? As soon as they come out of the mother's womb, they were born like 18 year olds, they would start sinning that, that moment. The Bible is clear that Ephesians 2 1, we're dead in sin. Romans 8, 8, we are unable to please God. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Meaning, the righteous things we do, we do it for our own pride. We do it for our own pride. Like Philip Morris, they have that $100 million campaign, stop smoking among young children. Right? $100 million, tell people not smoke. They spend $100 million to advertise the fact that they have this program. Right? So $100 million to get people to stop smoking. 100 million spending to tell people that's how good we are, right? To market their quote unquote righteous deeds. God says, that's not just Philip Morris, that's everybody. We do righteous things on Christmas to get presents, to make friends, to be liked. It's not true righteousness. Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is no one righteous, 
Not even one total depravity. I'm kind of stealing from Marcy Sproul. I'm sure he doesn't mind. But he uses uh, these two common illustrations that are given to the church to tell people, no, there is a vestige of righteousness, a remnant of, of goodness in us that we have to exercise to be saved. The illustration, I'm going to summarize it, is we're drowning in the open sea, going down for the third time, and a rescuer comes and throws a life preserver. That's what God did for you. That's what God is doing for you now. But you, sir, must reach out and grab hold of that life preserver. If you don't grab hold of that, then you cannot be saved. Or the other illustration is you're on your deathbed, you have this deadly disease, and they found the cure. But they brought the antidote to you, the cure, but you have to digest it. You have to swallow it. You have to exercise your free will to take this medicine for you to be saved. And using those illustrations, they promote free will of man to choose God or reject Him. R.C. Sproul said, If we're going to use analogies, let's be accurate. The Bible tells us that we are not like the drowning man going down for the third time in the open ocean. No, we're like the guy we've been missing for five years in the open ocean. I don't know how good of some of you are, but no one can tread water for five years. So you've been on the bottom of the sea for five years, and all the crabs and lobsters have been eating away at your flesh, and there is nothing left, and even your bones have been you know, corroded away. That's the state you and I were in when God saved us, gave us new life in Christ. We're not sick in bed. We were morally stillborn. Right, spiritually stillborn. We never had life to begin with. It's not like we had spiritual life. We were these pure, innocent, holy children. And this dirty, American, capitalistic, 21st century media corrupted us. Right? And then they robbed us of any innocence. And therefore, we're sick. And the gospel is the medicine. No. From, the, from birth, we never had spiritual life. We never had any righteousness. And Christ gave us righteousness. And the fifth and final point of Jesus Christ is completed salvation. Completed salvation. Verse 39 and 40. This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. This is the the chain of salvation that Pastor Jason talked about last week, how God has started and God will finish, all, finish it all. You know, Jason preached last week, Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. So everyone that's predestined, He calls all of them. Everyone that He's called, He justifies every single one. Every single one He justifies, He will glorify. Salvation is complete from God's perspective. Every single one, from beginning to the end. Jesus didn't die and provide salvation. And He's waiting. Oh, I hope that God you know, believes in me. Oh, I hope that girl will see what happens. Oh, okay. oh, she did. I hope she continues in her salvation that she'll be saved. He's not passively waiting, providing salvation. Now it's up to us. He did it all. 
He predestined, He called, He justified, He glorified every single one. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows us by name. And He did it all from beginning to the end. And so our salvation from God's perspective is complete. Not discounting our obedience, our suffering, our sacrifice that, that is needed to grow as Christians. We're not saying, we're not antinomians, anti-law. No, we need to suffer and obey Christ from our lives, but from God's perspective. That's the, that's the Bible, right? The Bible is not given to us so that we might see our perspective, that the Bible might agree with us. The Bible is God's revelation, revealing to us God's perspective, and from God's perspective, salvation is complete. These are the five points that were taught by Jesus Christ. Unconditional election, irresistible grace, eternal security, definite depravity, and completed salvation. And these doctrines are taught by the Apostle Paul. He gave it to Timothy. And that was passed down to Augustine. Augustine passed down to Jan Hus. John Calvin, Martin Luther, the Puritans, John Owen, John, John Bunyan, Thomas Manton, Thomas Watson, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, B.B. Warfield, Charles Hodge, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, James Shin, now to you. Right? Passed down from Jesus Christ to all of us as precious doctrines that will sustain our hope in Christ to the end. These are to me precious truths by our Lord. I discovered these truths about seven years ago, after having been a Christian for six years, after having been in the Arminian mindset for six years, God transformed my heart, gave me these wonderful truths. And I'll close by sharing with you the sweet fruits that are produced by these doctrines. The sweet fruits First of all, these truths have given me a right view of God, a high view of God. Previously, I thought God was powerful, but not all-powerful. I thought God was sovereign, but not so sovereign that He could prevail upon my own will. There were two protagonists, God and James Shin. And though God had 99% authority, sovereignty, and power, I had 1%. Therefore, God was not all-sovereign. God was not all-powerful. But after learning these truths, teaching me that I was hopelessly captive to my sinful nature, that God saved me from the pit, He did it all first to last, radically transformed how I view my life, how I view my worship, my prayer life, my praise life, my obedience, my walk before God has forever changed. You know, before I was trying to change the world because it was up to me. It was up to you. I lived for myself, lived for others as a Christian after these truths. I realize now, I've come to realize I have the audience of one because he is sovereign. It's up to him. My goal is not success. My goal is not popularity or influence. My goal is not to grow this church. My goal is not to have you like me, applaud me or affirm me. My, my goal is just to Obey God and worship Him. Pleasing God is the only thing that matters. I'm not here to do anything else, and neither are you, because of these doctrines. These truths 
have helped me in my sanctification. The greatest threat to my sanctification is my pride. And I can't kill my pride because it's, it's such a part of who I am. only way I can kill my pride is when I die. And James James' pride dies. Even to my last breath, I will have some pride. Pride can't be killed. It can only be replaced. And only one big enough, powerful enough to replace James James' pride that I can truly worship is God that is all-sovereign. God that is all-powerful. God that is great, awesome, mighty, majestic in all His might. It has granted me advancement in my humility. Help me to go from the front row where I was, standing up like a Pharisee in Luke 18, praying about myself. Lord, look at all that I do. Man, look at this church, and this is what I do. Man, I come early for service. You know, I'm the last one out. I evangelize more than anyone. You know, I memorize the Bible. I pray to you. I minister. Look how much I've been used by you, God. Man, nobody here has been used by you like me. Man, praise God. These doctrines... Understanding my depravity and God's holiness have caused me to go to the back row like the, fair, like the tax collector and not even raise my head, just beat my chest. God forgive me, I'm a sinner. It's not about workspace righteousness. I'm a sinner like the rest of them, everybody else. And you did, you did everything. You are good. You have saved me. You deserve all the glory. It has given me boldness to preach the gospel. As a prophet of this generation, as for all of you, it will give you boldness to proclaim the gospel. It's not up to our persuasiveness, not our ability to communicate. It's not any way of human influence or dynamic personality. That's not important. These doctrines teach us we need to be faithful to the gospel and be passionate to proclaim it. And God will save His people through His Word, through the Holy Spirit. Two more Help me to pray. Help me to pray for the lost. You know, praying for my dad. I, I kind of stopped praying for my dad because I saw how close he was. So as an Arminian, why well, pray? Because I talked to him today. You know, he's not going to change. And before I was praying, that praying to my dad, Dad, would you please change your heart towards Christ? And so because he was so close, I stopped praying. But when I discovered these truths, doesn't matter about my dad. He's equally dead in sin like everybody else. He's not here, right? He's equally dead in sin like everybody else. So it doesn't matter about you know, his person, you know, what he thinks. It's up to God. And if God gives grace, if God gives mercy, God will save my dad. So I begin to pray to God because the personal God, He promised He will listen. And He promised in the Scriptures He desires all men to be saved. And my dad became a Christian a few years ago. And I don't thank my dad. I thank God because God did it all. Right? And finally, it gives me confidence as a Christian because my salvation is in God's hands. I'm so thankful. This Thanksgiving, I'm thankful to God. Because if it wasn't up to my hands, I would ruin it all. I would ruin my life. I would ruin the gospel, ruin my testimony, ruin Cornerstone. I would destroy it all and I would be a sad testimony to Christ. But because my salvation is in God's hands and He started it and He will end it, I can rest in Christ. And the work that I do for Christ is not to earn His pleasure, 
But it's because I have His pleasure. Right? Because uh, He already loves me. Because He has already received me. I am not trying to be adopted. You know, put my best foot forward, hoping that He will adopt me to His family. No, I can live my life as a Christian in peace and joy because He has already adopted me, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and has given me confidence as a believer. May these truths be precious to you and be a source and aid to, in your walk with Christ and as you give thanks to Him this week. Father, would you humbly praise you for who you are. God, we, for, we ask for your forgiveness, for entertaining thoughts about you that are inconsistent with the attributes of God as presented in the scriptures. We are so prone, like the Israelites, we're so prone to wanting idols fashioned after the image of man. And we're so prone to make these idols and worship them because we are worshiping ourselves. We are no better than the Israelites who ask for a golden calf Lord, that you will forgive us. Oh Lord, you would fix our eyes in the scriptures so that our minds will be unmoved in a right and high view of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, may you be big in our eyes. May you be powerful in our hearts. Lord, may we have courage and strength daily for the battle of sanctification daily in the battle for the Christian faith because we know of whom we believe. The Lord knows who are His. You are for us and not against us. Lord, knowing who You are, may that knowledge promote in us much grace, much humility, much meekness as we uh, seek to uh, live out these truths and proclaim it in this world. Oh Lord, we have so much to be thankful to you this week. As Christians, God, forgive us for ever saying a grumbling word, having a heart, my thoughts of discontentment. Oh God, woe to be us because we're so prone to be discontent. When we look at our salvation and what you did. Oh God, may gratitude and thanksgiving not be a yearly event, but maybe a daily, hourly, moment by moment characteristic of us. May, may our lives be marred by one of gratitude and thanksgiving for the amazing love you have given to us, shown us in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.